Okay, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. How you doing? Oh, wow, it's Thursday. Here we go again. Right, 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 getting ready for the weekend. Um, thanks so much for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm, I'm just going to tell you, you know what? I am so happy to be in the studio today, and I'm going to tell you why. Because our bathroom's not working, and the studio has a lovely bathroom. It happened. I don't know what happened. We got like a, a knock on the door at like 7 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden uh, our, our toilet must have been... I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened because I'm lucky my husband cleaned it up before I got up. Can you believe that? Shout out, Phil. But also uh, the neighbor, the neighbor downstairs, that was the problem. It was a disaster. It was, so I'm really, you know, you know me. I'm Dr. Lisa, the self-proclaimed psychotherapist, and I'm having a meltdown, and now I'm feeling so much calmer being here. Um, uh, We have an amazing guest on today, Amira Oh my God, I'm going to like blank on Mira Martin. Um, Oh God, I got nervous there. I got nervous there. Although I got to tell you, um, it's really, it's really my projection. It's really my projection. So Mira Martin is L is a real shrink. She's a real shrink and she is a big, she's making big things happen. Uh, But before, before we get to her and I'm, um, it's really a big deal that she's here. She's a really like she's she's got a lot going on. She's got like a lot. Of, she's got a huge therapy practice. Okay, not just she's got other therapists working for her. I'm gonna try and see maybe I can get her to hire me, even though I have no credentials. But I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I uh, you know you never know. You never know. So anyway, um, the thing is, is that I need you to go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Okay, I need you to do that. I need you to I need you to check out our station. Our station is a 501c3. We are a community station uh run by host volunteers. Uh we need to keep the lights on and uh we would love it if you could you know pay some attention to us. It's not just me here. You know, I'm not the whole station. I mean, there are so many good shows. There's a ton of music, every kind of music. There's talk, there's comedy, there's politics. And we have a newsletter. I think you should just go there, okay? Okay, you know that. All right. So back to Amira, Amira Martin. And and I'm so embarrassed that I almost fumbled her name. I, I I just got stuck. I'm afraid that I forget things, which makes me forget them. That's my cognitive problem. So let's get serious. I'm going to tell you about Amira. Um, this is from the uh, Columbia School of Social Work website. She's she's written up everywhere, but anyway, this is this is the bio that I chose because I think um, it's really the broadest and really will explain uh, Amira's intentions as far as I can see most directly. So she's on a mission to significantly contribute to the healing of the black, indigenous, people of color community while simultaneously creating a strong collective of black and brown healers and aiding in their professional growth and ongoing contribution to the health, mental health field. As part of our mission, she also provides speaking, training, workshops, and coachings coaching an organization and for in the in 
individuals interested in improving their skill set, understanding, and services to the black and brown community. Um, she also is the author of, uh, I think, also a very important book for black and brown girls, but really for any girl, for any girl. It's called um, The Prettiest Girl. And it's really about how it really helps. It's a, it's a girl's book. A lot of, you know, it's, it's for your girl, it's for a girl growing up and to understand her value and self-worth. Uh, and the whole, you know, prettiest thing is like, that's bullshit. We all know that we all know it. We all know it. And so, you know, ever don't get me started. Don't get me started. Why that's a problem. You know why it's a problem. You don't need me. So what I think we're going to talk about today is I wanted to, um, Amira uh, is one of seven children. I want to talk to Amira about her childhood because I think she, I mean, it's unbelievable. She was uh, one of seven children growing up in a single parent household. She helped her mom with her siblings, which never bothered her. But she also has a dad that she helped that was dealing with mental illness. And she became a parent at a young age and juggled her schooling and did everything that she has to till today. Uh, Mother, happily married mother of three and she really got it all together as as a single mom herself. And like, I find that just miraculous. I just do. I just do. So I want to find out about her background a little, what she went through, how she overcame it. And also, I think uh, we are going to also discuss a very, very, very important topic, which is what, what, what we, what, people need what white people really in a certain way therapists need to understand we need to have a conversation about what um what her specialty is which is black and brown patients and the difference between black and brown patients and maybe white patients and what we are talking about what we get right what we don't get right and we're going to have a really open conversation i already told uh, a mirror that I'm sure I'm going to offend her because I offend everybody, but I'm sure I'm going to be offensive, but I really am willing to take it, take it on because I think it's a really important discussion and a is here for it. Amira, hello. <laughs> that, okay. Please. Description of your practice in your own words, just a really great practice is a large private practice. I have over 50 five-zero therapists. All of our therapists are black and brown folks, and they come from the community that we serve. So our therapists are all over New York City, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Westchester, um, Southern New York, Western New York. And it's really important to us that our therapists are representative of the community that we serve so that they can help those community members uh, really do their best and understand them and and really help. So I, I feel like it's an effective way to, to really help people to grow and heal when you fully get them. Mm-hmm. So you feel, so it seems as if you, um, if, if, as if you, um, 
you know, really, it's, if people really are from the community, the therapists you have are from the community, and we're talking about black and brown communities, but really isn't it true of any community that, you know, if you have somebody that has the same uh, growing up, the same background, it's going to be quicker, and there's going to be, a, it's just going to be a level of trust and in, that's very instinctual, and I'm not sure if there's any other way to achieve that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that it's also that level of trust and it, and understanding from sameness and experience, and obviously there's some differences too, but there's also like avoiding some of the racism and the pitfalls that happen when, when, when people of color access mental health care and health care systems that we've all kind of experienced throughout our lives. So that's also a very important part of it for me yeah. and for us. Yeah, that's something I definitely want to understand, and we're going to get to that after we get... I just want to go through your personal history a little bit, but I do really need to understand, and I need to learn. There's so much to understand, and I know that we have... that I'm going to talk about myself because I'm going to say that I have systemic racial bias. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know. I don't have it. I don't believe I have it in my heart. But I know that I have it. I have it not just for race, for other things. I try to understand my dog, for God's sakes. So, so um, I, I, I do want us to learn to learn about that. So I just want to understand your background a little bit. It sounds like it must have been like, it sounds insane. Seven children sound insane on any level. But when the, you also have a single mother and a father with a mental illness, that's just, uh, it's unimaginable to me. So please help us understand it. So where, where did you grow up and where are you in the birth order? Yeah. Go ahead. Tell us about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I was born in the Castle Hill Projects in the Bronx, um, and the first six of us were all born in the Castle Hill Projects in the Bronx. My dad was a hospital police officer originally, and he was also schizophrenic. Oh, wow, and really? He was a very high-functioning schizophrenic. Um, he self-medicated with crack and other drugs throughout his life, and he slowly deteriorated. Right, because when you don't have good mental health care, this is what's going to happen. Well, and schizophrenia, you can't function if you don't have medication, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's Absolutely. a lot of homeless people wind are people without that aren't medicated. So Absolutely. go ahead. So, mm -hmm. yep. so over time, my dad worsened. Right, if I when I speak to any of my relatives and, and parts that I remember of my dad, he was this really sweet, smart man. Um, who got sick, and, and, and as he got sicker, he got more and more violent and enraged and just not a nice person to be around. So eventually my mother did leave him. Wow. And when she left him, she took all her then six children with her. We ended up in a homeless shelter. We oh ended up going God. to different relatives' homes. Finally, she didn't have a job. This is This will tell you how my how my mom um, was able to manage seven kids eventually. Um, when we were in the shelter, my mom was downstairs in the office. You know, when you're in the shelter, you have to check in and tell them what you're doing and let them know if you're looking for work or if you're not or what's happening with your 
public assistance, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. She was checking mm-hmm. in. And when she was checking in, this woman comes in and she charges at, at my mom's social worker. My mom grabs the woman and puts her in a, in a headlock and throws her down on the couch and holds her there until security can come. Oh, my God. So my How old were you? That, I was four. Oh, my God. And where are you in the birth order? So I'm number five. I'm number so the five. other kids were there? Yeah, we saw that. And then that is how my mom got a job. They hired her on the spot, and she ended up rising through the ranks and becoming an, a high-ranking administrator with the uh, New York City shelter system over it took 20 years, but it happened. Oh, my God. Um, so, Wow, what a good role. Yeah. What an amazing role model. What an amazing, like, yeah, what an absolutely. amazing role model. And, like, absolutely. yeah, I love that. I love that a woman, a woman did that. Mm-hmm. I love it. I just love it. Okay. Yeah. 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 You're proud of her. So, I can see it. I'm Guys, I wish you could see the eyes Amira has, like, how she's looking. <laughs> We're all really, it's it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It really honestly is. Okay. So you saw that happen. And did that affect you? Like, do you have like that memory burned into your head? That seems like a very powerful, that would make for a very, very powerful memory. Did it? I do have that memory burned in my head. I actually have um, a lot of my early memories of my mother were her fighting. Physically fighting. Fighting for us. Mm -hmm. Fighting to get out the house, you know, to be able to keep us safe from my father fighting, grabbing that woman and putting her in a chokehold. Um, when my sister saw, you know, the, the man in the store cheated my sister out of her change, when, you know, when we finally moved into our apartment, my mom went downstairs and she she trashed the place. And she said, if you ever steal from one of my kids again, you're going to pay. So my <laughs> mom was a force to be reckoned with. Wow. Wow. And that was my example. So that must you know. have been so... Um Horrible, disturbing uh, when your dad, so your dad, because schizophrenia comes on, like you can be really normal until a certain point in your life and then it comes on. Is that what happened to him? Exactly, Dr. Lisa. Yes, he was normal. He was kind. He was wonderful. He was charming. He was handsome. Then he was sick and then he was sicker and then he was horrible. And And that's what happened. And and that must have been so disturbing for your family like I can't did did um so did you see did you did he did he become was he violent a lot or did that happen suddenly or what what yeah so it was gradual from what I'm told but I've never known my father outside of schizophrenia and Uh. and crack addiction never known you know a father who wasn't addicted to crack or schizophrenic actively because he wouldn't take medication um, and he's deceased now. They're both actually deceased, unfortunately. Mm, sorry. But I never, knew, I never met that man. Um, I saw glimpses of him, which is amazing. I mean, I, I never met healthy him. Obviously, oh, you never met that. Him, so right? where, where? Right. So did you see him when he was, you know, schizophrenic and taking drugs and stuff like that? Oh yeah, that's the only way I ever saw him. Was so was he at home at, at home during that? So initially when we lived with him, he would go in the room and get high for hours. And if you wanted to talk to him, you had to go in the room and he'd be sitting there getting high. And then when we, we had visitation with him later and he would literally be, you know, sitting at the table smoking crack um, and go out on these binges and, 
you know, have us do the rounds of collecting cans with him in the morning so that we'd have food to eat during our visit. It was it was pretty horrific. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is really horrific. That is really, really, really horrific. And yeah. um, do you do you think like you're such a leader and a healer and all that stuff? Like you really, you really, really want to help people. So do you think that came from like your what you went through with your dad? Maybe you wanted to help him and it was hard to help him. Do you think there's any connect? Like how how did seeing your dad like that? How do you think that? Um, makes you into the person it contributed or had a role in the, who you are now? Yeah, I think in two ways. One is that um, my dad was sick, right? However, even through his sickness, he could also be kind and compassionate. He was the first one to teach me about um, going on a hunger strike for something you believed in and about uh, Eastern medicine and people overseas and you know, he was also, you know, if he hadn't gotten sick, he would have been quite something. So he he gave me a lot in those moments, also. Um, and I, I know I learned from him, and I have, you know, I have parts of him in me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that kindness and that caring for mm-hmm. all others. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also seeing him that sick and how that affected my life and my mom's life and all of that and my siblings' lives and seeing my siblings, some of them also became ill over time, mm. um, really let me know how important mental health was from a really young age, mm. right? Um, I got it really young. And when I decided on a career, I wanted to do something that was important to me, right? And mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, that was the only thing that felt important to me, you know? You know, it's, sure. it's so amazing or so uh, rewarding that, like, that your dad had such a hard, hard road to hoe and he was able to, there was a beauty in him that you still got and got to keep. Yeah. And I love that. I love that. It's very sort of sad, but sort of beautiful. And uh, mm-hmm. what about your siblings? Are you in touch with them or some of them? It must have been. I'm guessing the older ones, it must have been harder on them, or what happened with your siblings? Yeah, so it was harder on the older ones. Um, there's also, like, a 10-year gap. Like, the first three were a year apart, then a 10-year gap, and the second three uh, were all two years apart, and I'm, one, I'm the middle one of the second three. And then 10 years later, my mom had my youngest brother, Jonathan, uh, who has a different dad. And... um so the older ones got the brunt of the abuse from my father, yeah. whereas, and, and the brunt of more poverty, right? Like, I, we started impoverished with my mom, but, but we didn't stay there because she was determined not for us not to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so they got the brunt of the abuse from him and also the brunt of, of extreme poverty, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was... That was hard on them. I do keep in touch with them. Um, I have one sibling, one sister who I don't have a relationship with, and that's really on her, not on me. I, I love all of my siblings. Oh, it's beautiful. That's really cool. Yeah, no matter what happens, I'm always mm-hmm. going to be, A, I'm always going to love them, and B, I'm always going to be available to them, period. That's good. You know? No, I'm glad to hear that. That, that seems like a yeah. pretty decent outcome considering yeah, but your parents had some really good parts 
or your mom was amazing, and your dad had some really cool parts. Um, yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, so you really knew what you wanted you what you wanted to do. I did, I did, and you know, I have to say, Doctor Lisa, for me, right, um, a big part of like black and brown community um, was also seeing and and being part of it and and consciously being part of it in a very active way, also from my dad and also um, from seeing him deal with race and how it impacted him, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's a lot that I've gotten from Mm -hmm. both of them, like a lot of really beautiful things that Mm. I've gotten from them both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've taken, you've taken, wow, what a great example Humanity can be pretty cool. See what we could all be yeah. doing, this, you know? Uh, so I want to, um, so talk to me about what you, what you think in your, I mean, you have a lot of experience. So what, what is, what do, let's, let's just call this out. I think what do, what do white, therapists what is what do we miss what do what do white therapists miss what is the difference what what can you talk tell us about that why you think it's important to yeah. to serve your you know a black and brown community so talk, talk tell us about that absolutely so i think a couple of things um <clears throat> so when people of color go into therapy, and this is something that I experienced that all of the therapists I know who have been in therapy have experienced, for instance, it's like this is a very common uh, theme, is, you know, being treated with, like, this idea that you're you're this way or you're that way or you're this or you're that. Um, and the reality is, at the end of the day, people of color are just like everybody else, right? Like, some of us are kind, some of us are mean, some of us are sweet, some of us are soft, some of us are hard. Some of us like to laugh and be silly, and some of us are just pissed off, you know? Like, we're just regular people. There's no monolith, right? There's absolutely no monolith. And we get boxed in a lot. And it's really important for us to be able to express our true selves and fully express ourselves. And I think that white therapists can encourage that and and help with that. And then I also think that... um, when I think about the things that are some of the norms that a lot of us deal with and that a lot of white therapists don't understand or don't um, necessarily know to work on, is that we all deal with racism. We all deal with oppression. And we all um, learn to cope in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So for some of us, it's becoming an activist, right? For others Mm -hmm. of us, it's, you know, becoming... um, defending ourselves, right, in the best way we can and putting up the shell, right? Mm-hmm. For some of us, it's, um, you know, they're just, they're, it's accepting these racist ideas and believing and having self-hate, you know? So there's so many different ways that we deal with so, that part of our existence. And it's really an identity self-esteem thing, isn't it? I mean, I think that, I know, like, as a woman, I've self-esteem. There are certain issues I have as a woman with self-esteem, but I'm sure people of color have a certain different, a, a certain type of self-esteem issues. Is that right? Yeah, About race? Does racism, I mean, I don't know anything, and I'm going to wind up. No, no. No, but go ahead. Explain to me, like, I want to understand 
um, how race affects self-esteem and how ther- the difference in white therapists and therapists of color uh, know how to de- you know manage that, help yeah, with that. So I think when I think of the part that I would tie to self-esteem, I think of internalized racial inferiority, right? So it's like accepting the racist idea that you as this person of color, you, you see all these racist ideas around that you're, you know, um, you're a woman, you're loose, or you're ugly, or you're masculine, or you're not smart, you're not an, you're not an intellectual, you can't be smart oh. enough, ever. <laughs> right. right? Like, <laughs> you can't be an intellectual, James Baldwin. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, or you're not hardworking, right? Like, oh, my God. Things. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. That makes me that makes me insane, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So those are some of the negative ideas and the things that we face. And then when we internalize those ideas, we, you know, because we grow up around them so much, everywhere it's saying them, the media, the pictures we see, the teacher who only chooses the lighter skin kids to answer questions <gasps> in class, like really? on and on and on, you know, mm. um, mm-hmm. we start, we may internalize that. It's, it's yeah. the norm. Sure. Internalized racial inferiority is the norm, just like internalized racial superiority is the norm for white folks, right? Like right. constantly seeing themselves in the winning position everywhere you go. It's like, oh, look at this great white hero, another great, great white conqueror, great white president, <laughs> great, you know? So... Um, so with those two things, you and I, Dr. Lisa, might play roles without even being conscious of yeah, it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Without even being conscious of it. Yeah. So I think that's really important for us to know, for all white folks and white therapists, partic- white women therapists in particular, um, to, for us all to think about, you know? Yeah, um, because, yeah, because, I mean, it's like us social it's 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 definitely an an obstacle is is it yeah it's a social construct really like these things are built into the systems that we live in they're built into our educational system they're built into everything they're built into the medical system like we all know about those things like these things are everywhere so we can't help but to pick up these messages and they're going to affect us and we have to think about that and try to be conscious Right, and to, and to make change, and it know? takes a lot of consciousness in order to even even be aware of it, and um, uh, I just think that you're it's it's hard enough for people to be conscious of anything, and that's like a whole other level of consciousness. Do you think that yeah. um, it's that people of color can talk? to a white therapist? I mean, do you think that, that, that they're going to be thinking like this person doesn't understand uh, the obstacles I've been, that I have to deal with? Or, I mean, as, as, right. as, a, as a woman, right. I would say I have more obstacles than a man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if I right. always think a, a male therapist would get that, but is it like that? Right. Well, it is somewhat like that, but, um, but I think that there's also like a lot of people of color see white therapists all the time and have wonderful white therapists who change their lives and have great relationships sure. that last with white therapists. So it's not like it can't work, you know, it can yeah. work, it can work. Um, but, 
it's, you know, and usually, unless like the white therapist is, you know, from Bed-Stuy or, you know, from the Bronx, and if we're talking about New York City community, like, then they're going to have to do some work to understand the person and understand the community, you know? And that's not like, um, and I think that work can be discussion and just, you know, exploring, and it can also be like going out, doing their own research on the side and trying to understand more and that sort of thing, you know? Or, or talking within supervision groups or peer supervision groups or all these different avenues that we have for, for learning more. Mm-hmm. But... Like, just like you as a woman, right, would feel like there are some things a man can't get. Right. Like most of the therapists are men. You're probably not going to be like, you know what? I'm not going to go to the therapist. They're all men. Uh-huh. You probably go anyway. You know what I mean? Right, right, the one that can work right. You. So are mm-hmm. there a lot of therapists of color, black and brown therapists? I mean, you're doing something about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely trying to. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of black and brown therapists. And like, if we are currently, if black folks are like 13%, I'll stick with black folks for this example. If we're 13% of the population, we're probably like 0.4% of therapists, literally. It's like some really? ridiculously minuscule number where you're not, if you're black or brown and you need a therapist, you probably going to have to choose a white therapist. Wow. Um, yeah. If, if you're in New York City or Maryland or, a place where there's more, a lot more black folks and you might have a little bit more of a chance. But even then, we're oftentimes full. People want to see us because we get them, you know? So what what is, um, as I mean, you can't speak for everyone, of course, but what's your impression, let's say, of uh, the idea of therapy in a black, brown community? What's your idea? What, what, what are people willing to go to therapy or is there a stigma around it? Like there is yeah. particular, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I feel like there was more of a stigma in the past. There's still a stigma, but uh, I mean, we get so many people, you know, age 30 and younger. So just, just past my generation. So just past generation X, the next generation is open to therapy. Yeah. way more than any other generation has been That's... in our community for a long, long time. Um, so there's less of a stigma with that generation. There's It's working a lot. Um, but also having providers that can get them um, means a great deal, you know, to the older generation. And then they're right. quite a bit more willing to step out if the therapist looks like them and can understand them in that way. That makes sense, I guess. But that's good to yeah. hear that. That um, I mean, I'm I'm a lot older than you, and I've seen mm-hmm. in my day a shift from, uh, you know, the racism of my youth to now, and it yeah. things have seen. We're not there, whatever. But it does seem dramatic to me. Does it to you? The difference. The change, the Absolutely. positive change. Absolutely, yes. And I think, um, you know, this is like one of the things that this is always always shows me about my optimistic view of of race in our country, right? Like, there's so many horrible things happening, and that's real. Um, and systemic racism is, is real. Um, but I remember when Barack Obama was running, 
and I was in one of these meetings at my job at a uh, nonprofit, and it was focused on race. And as we did this work of race every month, and we came together, and um, everybody was in agreement that there's no way he'd win. He's a black man. He's not going to win. These are mostly white folks, right? No way he's going to win. No way there are countries to race. And I'm just like, I think he's got a chance, you know. So I think that it may have been my youthful optimism or, um, you know, something else. But I do think that I do see the positive changes and, and the possibility. There is possibility and, and those possibilities are happening, you know. Yeah. And I also think that Barack Obama is so well respected today. And I think that he's still in our consciousness and in our, you know, a prominent figure in our society. And I think that really helps. I think he's like the best example of a living president, ex-president, whatever. So I think, I think, I think he really did make a huge, huge difference. Um, Let's just hope he doesn't have any of those top secret documents. <laughs> Who doesn't? Come on. I found some in my closet. <laughs> Who doesn't have top secrets? Of course. Uh, what about what? What? Ha, so you, ha, you, uh, you know, you t- teach your, uh, at Columbia and you, you've been involved in so many different organizations. Can you talk a bit about what do you think? What do you think the white mental health community misses? Are there things that that we we white people are missing that we need to know? I mean, it could be anything. Could be we should know more about, you know, what you guys, what you know, food, anything. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think that there is anything that white people necessarily need to know, right? I think that. Um, the more that people can, you know, be outside their bubble, right? We're all in our bubbles to some extent. The more experience and the more understanding they can have of others, I think that's a good thing. Um, But I think that we as, you know, people of color, we have, and we have been doing it for a long time, really working on our own growth. Yeah. Health and building ourselves and connecting with each other and helping each other. So I think that that's, you know, I think more about that than I think of like, huh, well, those white people need to do this and that. You know what I mean? Because right. it's kind of like, where's, where's, where's the you know, growth? We have power. We right. have power and we have power to make change and power to grow and heal and heal each other. And yeah, we've been through a lot in this country and all countries on the globe, mm. <laughs> but, um, but we're here and we're strong and we're smart and we're talented and, but so have I, don't you worry, ever, I don't really think about it that way. Have you ever been, like. yeah, because you're more, because you cut your shit together better than I do. That's why. <laughs> no, but have you ever been in a meeting, like uh, some kind of mental health organization and thought to yourself, you have a nice dog, don't you? <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's yeah. all right. So That's sorry. all right. We love dogs. My dog okay. was bar- barking all morning. Uh, so the thing is, is that, uh, have you ever been in a meeting and thought, God, they really don't get us, you know, in a mental Absolutely. health? Yeah. So can you Absolutely, talk about yeah. something like that that happens? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so sorry for my dog. No, don't worry about it. Um, I just wanted to call so it out so there. people didn't think that, you know, that we were surrounded by wild animals. Oh, yeah. No, she's downstairs. Um, 
But, um, yeah, and honestly, it's really been more, more than anything, it's been the stereotyping and the racism in those meetings, right? Like, um, just the level of thinking that someone, someone darker, like, let's break this down really, really, really well. Like, someone who's darker than you and has darker hair and darker eyes just isn't smart, can't do his job right. And that's not true. Right. Right. That's often the racism at the end of the day. It's you have more melanin and therefore you can't. So people will gloss over others or, or people miss out on opportunity that they could possibly have had because people think that they're just not smart enough or good enough. So I think that that's probably the thing that I've seen the most and the thing that's been, you know, the most harmful and the most common all in all these different organizations that I've worked at. Um, just the racism, and not that these places were horrible, full of horrible people. No, they did no. a lot of great things. Um, and there was also this part that sometimes happened that didn't feel great too. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So you do. You do. Do you do you deal with racism in your organization personally? It doesn't seem like you would. No. Um, so in terms of like the organization, my organ, my company. Um, I can't say that I've seen any racism, right? Like we're all for the most part black and brown folks and have a similar understanding and um, all want to do this work for the same exact reasons and have similar shared goals and passions. Um, I have had some and have a couple of white providers um, and who are also equally like invested and very involved and, and Mm-hmm. the needs of the black and brown community. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I definitely don't. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we try to do also, like, <clears throat> this is my way of like systemically pushing back against some of what I saw, right? So some of what I saw in those organizations was racism where people weren't given opportunities that I knew that they were capable of, right? I remember was, even for me, when I took my LCSW exam, my supervisor who was a psychologist, she's just like, I don't think you're going to pass, <gasps> you know? Yeah, wow. and I was like, I'm going to pass. <laughs> wow. And I passed, you know. Wow. I passed. Um, that was like, you know, uh, 15 years ago now, mm-hmm. but I passed. Tell us about so, um, your book, The Prettiest Girl, your children's book. Oh, Tell yeah, us about absolutely. that. Yeah, so The Prettiest Girl um, really was inspired by my daughter, Sarah, and, you know, it's really about a girl who is given the task by her teacher of figuring out who the prettiest girl in the class is, right? Wow. So she's looking at all these different girls, black girls, white girls, Latina girls, Asian girls. We have girls with different ability levels in the book. Like, everybody's in the book. And everybody's looked at as like, huh, is that person the prettiest one? Um, and then she figures out from talking with her mom, she figures out that, like, it's not what's on the outside, right? It's what's on the inside. It's who you are. And it's how you treat other people. Like, that is how we determine beauty. And true beauty lies within. And this is how the things that you can do to connect, take care of yourself, develop yourself, and connect with other people. And that's what's beautiful, you know? Yeah. And that you can control that. Yeah. You can absolutely. make that happen. Like, absolutely. it's not like, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, longer hair or you know, different features or whatever it is, taller. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like you right. can make, 
So that is such a great message. And uh, thank you. How, and uh, I, I bet your daughter loves loved that book. How old is she, she now? How, how old is that one now? Yeah, she's six. She's six years oh, old. Oh, six years old. Oh, yeah, so is she, she absolutely loves uh, it. She loves it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And do you know a lot? You must talk to other mothers and stuff like that. Do have a, have they also taken in the book and shared it? And what kind Definitely. of feedback do you get? Does it kind of wake up something? Yes, definitely. I feel like um, I've had some people say that the book literally like changed their daughter's day-to-day dynamics just in going through life, right? Like now they feel good about themselves. They feel better about themselves. They feel smart and capable and they see how important that is, right? It's not just like, well, whose hair is the curliest or straightest or, you know what I mean? Um, so that's been great. And I have also some of those mothers have um, shared the book and bought the book for, you know, other parents and kids in their schools and that sort of thing. So that's meant, a, just meant, means so much to me, you know, to see that happening. That idea about what girls have to deal with seems to transcend race also. does. Do you think so? Absolutely. Yes. The, absolutely. The messages. Absolutely. I would say in my lifetime, some of the messages that have gotten to girls have gotten way worse about having to be attractive and what you look like and getting caught up in that. I think it's really gotten way worse. And And women, girls, women... Female identifying people do not do not make a direct connection to you know oppression, and that's really what it is because it's saying we we are going to value you on your sexual currency. That's how I see it. Absolutely, and Absolutely. and that's not good for the. It's it's not good for anybody. It's not, and it's also. Um it's also a very temporary uh, trait. Yeah. Right? Like, you're going to be, you know, slamming gorgeous maybe for a, 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 you know, a quarter of your lifespan. <laughs> and if you want to feel good about yourself outside of that quarter of your lifespan, then you had better work on some other parts of you and value other parts of you. That's you know? such an important message. Yeah, that's a real important Thank message. You. Um, I also wanted to talk to you, one of the things that you put in um, your bio, that there were two pivotal issues that influenced the decision for you to study to be a therapist, uh, mental health issues. The threat of, besides your dad, is the threat of police brutality. So we're dealing with that today and that horrible, you know, what's going on with Tyre, Tyre Nichols and stuff like that. And is that something that affects or not is it something how does police brutality i don't think that i we white people some of us me as a white person really get how that is a daily threat to a lot of people maybe men black men or men of color more can you talk about police brutality a bit and the mental, you know, how that affects people of color emotionally. Oh, I, I'm not hearing you. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So I think, well, I know and I've experienced and I've seen, right, like a tremendous effect because 
when you see someone that looks like you and that was walking down the street doing, you know, whatever um, non-deadly thing, suddenly gets surrounded, attacked, and beaten to death or almost beaten to death, it's very traumatic, and that's by the people who are supposed to take care of you and, and protect you. It's extremely traumatic, and then you walk around traumatized, literally traumatized. And there's like a feeling of a lack of safety that just doesn't go away. And when, when people have to deal with that, have to deal with like consistent trauma, fear, it affects other parts of their lives too. It's not only that you're traumatized and so therefore you have trouble learning, you have trouble connecting in relationships, you have trouble letting your guard down, you have trouble focusing because you're literally traumatized by images on television of the brutality and or seeing it in the street. Um, it's going to affect your whole Do you think that way. like in an urban area like the one that we're in right now, I mean, do you think that men is it does it affect men and women differently? I'm thinking that it would have that men would feel more likely to be a target. I think that um I think that black men particularly because they see it so often happening, feel more likely to be a target. But I have to say, personally and also professionally, um, I've seen and I understand, and I have also felt threatened myself. And, mm. you know, there was even a time when I was a teenager, I was about 17 with my boyfriend, and, um, you know, a cop stopped us, and I was arguing with my boyfriend, so I was in a horrible mood, and I didn't want to speak to the to the cop. And... um he said, "Oh, I don't usually beat the shit out of women, but I'll do it this time if you keep if you keep being rude or if you if you don't uh, answer me." So I was a seventeen year old girl, oh, you know, horrible. when that happened. So I definitely can't say I've felt particularly safe or protected. Mm-hmm. And, right. Um, the problem, you know. Yeah, I think you know it's really funny because I was talking to uh, a couple of my black male friends about. Mm-hmm about it and I was really surprised that these guys that I'm friends with who are the gentlest nicest got guys you can imagine that yeah. they are that they have to watch themselves in front of the police yeah, yeah. and they're just regular mm-hmm. really smart educated intelligent great humans and they're afraid of the police and i found that i i i was stunned and then i was stunned yeah. that i was stunned why yeah, are we why are we more aware and so what's going on now is that we see uh you know we see pe- black men getting beaten up okay so we don't we know that's wrong those are bad mm-hmm. cops but what about those are very black and white situations. Uh, but right. the thing, pardon the pun, that was sort of a pun, a bad <laughs> one, but pardon that. But the thing is, is that these are regular guys walking around every day with not, with not feeling protected and feelings, you know, uncomfortable with the police. They have, and, Absolutely. and they're just regular guys. That's part of day to day existence that is that that is to me an excellent example of systemic racism. Yes, absolutely. Because, because also it, because go ahead. 
Yeah, the players don't don't have to be white after some time, right? Like we know that sometimes even black cops are sure targeting and, and murdering, and it's a systemic. I think that's a great point. It's a systemic issue, but I think that also I think it's also so important. Like I feel like we need police reform. We need changes. We need mental health um, providers in every police department. We need so much to be able to serve all communities the way that they deserve to be served. We also need to not, you know, not pay people morsels when they are risking their lives every day, right? And like, yeah. We need to teach them. We need to weed out the pathological. They're literally pathological people attracted to that job. But they're also good people. Yes. So I don't want to ever paint one picture. No. I, um, I think I most of them are good. Things. Yeah. But just like um, with anything else, when you have the ones who are pathological and racist, um, and that's what we're seeing, we're going to be afraid of every single one of them, you know? So I think it's so important that those things get worked through and that we have a safer police system, you know, one that actually fully protects and, and builds themselves up in a way where they're not having people who are going to abuse or harm on their force at all. You know? Oh, I totally agree. And I also think in a certain way, the police need more respect. We, we also need to respect the police more. They are specialists. They are not mental health providers. Mental health providing is a big deal. And to really do it properly, I'm not I mean, you need a lot of schooling and training and, and stuff like that. There's a lot. You can't expect a police a police to do that. And if we got more yeah. mental health people involved with the police, the, you know, working with the police, that would solve a lot. And I also think I, you're I right. Totally agree. We don't treat them with respect. They are people who are taking on very, very life threatening, important jobs. Yeah. And, and absolutely true. And they are bigger in a certain way than, most people, because they're willing to put their lives on the line fearlessly to help the community, which seems insane to me. I could never even imagine that. I think I would be a surgeon before I would do that. I'm with you. I used to actually want to be a police officer, and then I realized I'd have to carry a gun, and I might have to use it one day. So I changed my mind. Yeah. You, but um. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think most people, like a lot of people want to be good and help. And then they end up in this system where they're not given the support they need. They're not taught things they need. They're not given the resources to properly serve the community. Just like, you know, so many other systems that go awry because it's not built in a way to succeed. Right. And there's a culture, I'm sure, in the police force that allows for some of that. I mean, they've got their own systemic problems but i think yeah, it's good that yeah. we're starting to talk about changing about changes yeah, in the police force sure. and even mm-hmm. though there's these horrible brutal uh incidents i'm glad that they're out in the light because we know yeah. before body cams and cam you know digital right. stuff I think one of the biggest right. mental health problems facing our society and in all cultures and for everyone, honestly, is the way the Internet and all its related apps and everything else has taken over our society. 
I think I think it's really I think people are uh I think it really adds to depression a lot of I think it's very yeah, I think totally. that we've gotten so far away from what humans are physically evolved to do which is to live in communities. Mm-hmm. And I don't even like I don't even like living with other people. <laughs> I don't even want, I wouldn't even want to do that, but it's better for you. Uh, yeah, but we're used, we should be living in tribes. That's how we are living in tribes. And we are so far, we are on the opposite of that. And every time technology takes us another step away, I think that it's very unhealthy in ways that we that are so subliminal and unnatural that we can't even tell. We don't even know. Right. I totally agree. I, I saw it with um, a younger person, a 20-year-old, um, that I was talking with the other day. And it's kind of like, you know, I know you're, you're, you're a smidge older than me, Dr. Lisa. Um, but I remember even in my generation, like before we got to all these electronics, right, Go out, go out, run downstairs, call your friend out the window, play all day. Yeah. As a teenager, who are you gonna whose house are you gonna go to and talk with? Sure. And if they deal with the problem, you will help them with their problem or they help you with a problem. It's like those things are now and now a lot of times it's become, well, um I I don't wanna have to be the person who carries your burdens, right? And it's over text, right? So you can't even um, talk about the issue. Right? Uh, it's just like spend time talking about helping each other. It's become this like very individualized society, and especially for younger people, where they're not, they don't know how to connect anymore the same way. Yeah. And I agree, it is a problem. It I, adds to depression, it adds to isolation, anxiety, all of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not mm-hmm. developing those skills. Like when you're in a room with somebody, if you're in a room, it's say you're you're at school, you're in a room with somebody. There's like. You're, ha- you're sharing an experience. There's a car alarm that goes off outside the window. Yeah. Everybody runs to the window. Yeah. It's those little things that is the glue of being a human, like going through things together. Absolutely. And I think that yeah. mental health is going to be a big, big, big challenge. And personally, I'm just going to say this, I'm a little more worried about boys, men than I am about females. I don't Mm, think they're equipped. mm -hmm. I think that biologically men Mm -hmm. are supposed to go out there and, you know, do physical things and, you know, express Mm -hmm. aggression and there's just no place Mm -hmm. for that. I completely hear you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So we have a minute and a half. Tell me one thing, like, can you sum up something that you take the most pride in of all your, all the things that you've achieved and contributed and contribute and continue to, can you say something quickly? Cause we only have a minute. The most pride in. Yeah. Like um, create. Well, it's really hard to say that because I think I take the most pride in parenting my kids. Really? That's the most important thing to me. Yeah. Is it? Um, even now that they're adults, two are adults, one's young, and being a really good mom to them is more important to me than anything. And also being a, a, as good as possible a wife, which I think I'm pretty good at that, too. But you've made such a huge contribution to your community. Yeah, and I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Um, and also those therapists, one of the things that we do is 
help them build their own practice when they're ready, right? So uh-huh. that's also how we continue to build the build and make sure that we spread out. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, we're going to have to wrap this up. So uh, I can't thank you enough. And I want to make sure that we get, first of all, go to Radio Free Brooklyn. I've been telling you that, all right? So go there. We need, we need help. We need help. See, we're doing good work. We need some help. But RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. But tell us your uh, info on, on what we should look into or how you, you offer free consultations and stuff. Go ahead. Tell yeah. us. Um, anyone who's in New York State can go to AmiraForHer.com and get a free consultation or order The Prettiest Girl on... Dr. Lisa gives shit.